Good evening. My name's Kip Collins, and I'm an alcoholic. I ain't had a drink all day long either. <clears throat> Didn't hurt nobody today. Didn't hurt myself. I worked all week, paid my way. Pulling the driveway at night, all my neighbors wave at me with all five fingers. Kids come running out of the house, say daddy's home, you know. I might not impress y'all, but I tell you what, that sure does tickle my mother. <laughs> I didn't even know people could live like that, you know. My sobriety date's May 12th, 1984. My home group is Robber's Roost. It's a closed men's meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, made up of about 80% ex-convicts. Uh, we got over 500 years in prison amongst us and we're trying to learn. We all know how to be tough guys. We're trying to learn how to be fathers and sons and, uh, and members of our community. And that's our primary focus and that drink. I want to thank uh, for the invitation to come out here. This is a beautiful building. Jeez, this is gorgeous. Except that it's not smoking. But, uh, I could fix that. <laughs> Tell you a little about what it was like, what happened, what it's like today, you know. My, my, my mother is a Choctaw. And Irish, and uh, my father's uh, Sioux and Irish. You got it. <sighs> my, my daddy loved to drink, and my mother loved to fight. You know, and uh, I don't blame my alcoholism on my daddy whatsoever. Man, he taught me exactly what alcohol will do to a do to a man, what it'll do to a family, what it'll do to a marriage. I had no illusions about alcohol. I wanted nothing to do with it, you know? You know, we, we lived in an insane asylum. We lived, uh, my dad drank every penny he made, and we lived in the barrio. There were four of us living in a one-bedroom house, four kids and two, my parents, and uh, it was all first-generation Hispanic. Nobody spoke English. And uh, my cousins were at my house all the time. They're mostly Indian. They're real dark skin, dark brown hair, dark brown eyes. And uh, me and my brother Bill, we were born with a uh, little toe heads, pug nose, freckles, and real white skin, you know. And uh, we'd walk out of the house, man. Them Mexicans wanted to beat our ass. We'd go in the house, them Indians wanted to beat our ass, you know. And, uh, Standing in that doorway many times, I was afraid to go in, I was afraid to go out. You know, I don't blame it on my dad. I've always told him I, I blame my alcoholism on the San Diego Unified School District. <clears throat> they had this great idea in the early 60s, it was time to start bringing in these young people and start educating them on that stuff we don't talk about in A&A, &A, you know. And, uh, they brought us in this hall and they showed us this movie and they had these fools get up and try to scare us about this stuff and they dismissed us and I hit my buddy Balto in the ribs and I said, can you get some of that? And uh, he said, yeah, sure. And uh, so I met him the next day. I said, you get it? He goes, yeah, meet me after school. So we hooked up after school. I said, so what do we do? He said, well, we got to go boost some wine. I said, how come? 
She says, I don't know. You know, but my dad always drinks wine when he smokes his stuff. And uh, we didn't want to make no mistakes. <laughs> I went down and boosted a, a short dog, Sweet Red Port, and he went and got a little bottle of Muscatel. We went down this little canyon. He fired that thing up. Took a hit off of it and he handed it to me and I took a hit off of it and started coughing. And I looked at this stuff. I pulled off that fancy screw cap, man, and I took a big pull. It hit my belly and jumped out and landed on my feet. But I ain't no queer, you know. I took another pull on her and he started doing that yo-yo thing. You know, and you gotta pinch your nose and it kinda hit bottom. Pretty soon it settled out. And and I took another little pull and that went down a little bit easier. It just got easier and easier. I looked over at Balto and he's squatting down, he's sucking on this little tiny cigarette. And he says, you want some? I said, no. I said, what are you gonna do with that? He goes, I don't want it, man, that stuff tastes horrible. And I said, can I have it? He says, yeah. So I drank his and, I, and I'll tell you that that was the most magic day of my life. I have no idea what alcohol did for y'all. Alcohol was the greatest thing that ever happened to me in my life until I found you people. I remember that day crystal clear. As, uh, I remember the day it worked and I remember the day that it didn't. Crystal clear. And uh, that day was a beautiful warm day and uh, I drank that and I just kind of leaned back and I was looking at the sky and uh, I experienced my very first spiritual awakening. You know, I realized for the very first time that I was absolutely, totally comfortable in my skin. And then it really dawned on me that I wasn't afraid of anything. I've been living in fear for so long. It was just part of me. You, you never knew what was going to happen. You know, it was just always chaos and. Uh, and everything was peaceful and quiet inside of my head and around me. You know, and I knew all about the first three steps a long time before I ever heard of you folks, you know. When I was 12 years old, I knew that I was powerless over this world. I knew my life was unmanageable. And I drank this magic stuff and I came to believe there was a power greater than all of it. And I immediately turned my will and life over to it and I never looked back. About a year later, I got kicked out of Seventh grade for beating up a teacher is a misunderstanding. <laughs> and, uh, and I got home and the school had ca called and ratted me out. My mom's standing there on the front door waiting for me and I walk in and she's standing there and she's holding this little plastic bag with this green vegetable matter in it. And she said, what's this? And I said, probably just what you think it is, mom. She goes, get off my property. And I was gone. I'd been waiting for her to tell me that since I was five years old, you know? And I split. I got over a little town called Carlsbad. And I was talking to a buddy of mine over there. He says, so what are you gonna do? I said, I don't know. And this is about 1964. He says, hey, well, check it out. All these people, they're, they're going up to San Francisco. And all they do up there is get high and listen to music and make love. I love music. <laughs> when I was 13 years old until I was about 55, that's about all I thought about. <laughs> Some other music lovers out there. 
I share in a very general way about my adventures in San Francisco. I was the, the worst hippie that ever landed there. Um, I'm a fighter. These people were not. And uh, once again, I did not fit in. Someone would say something to me, I'd smack them, you know? And they would get all upset about it. I'd smack them, you know? And uh, I found out what my true calling is. You know, I'm actually a capitalist pig, you know? Uh, I saw what these, all these suburbanite kids wanted, you know? And I saw what they were paying for it. And all my friends come from Mexico. And I called them. So Balto, check it out, man. He couldn't believe it. He says, come on down. We went down, we talked to his family, and we put a little thing together, started a little business. And uh, and that went along really good, you know, for a long time, man, until I was about 16 years old. And then I got arrested down in Mexico uh, with 200 kilos of this stuff. And uh, they sentenced me to 25 years in federal prison, La Mesa Federal Penitentiary. And I had long blonde hair, you know, and uh, I weighed about 10 pounds, <laughs> wet, and uh, and I was kind of scared, you know, and they walked me down in there, but it turned out to be another one of the most greatest things that ever happened to me. Balto was related to everybody in there, and uh, it was all a family business, and I mean, I was part of the family, and they just welcomed me in, and they took care of me, and that's where I got my master's degree in criminology. <clears throat> I, uh, I love Mexico. It's a civilized country, you know. Uh, it works on the principle of mordida, and uh, that means the little bite, and what that means is if you can afford justice, you can have it, you know. I like a country that works that way. I had never I had no trouble getting money. You know, we found the right people. I got my way out of there after about two years. I went back to work doing what I was doing. And I no sooner got up here than, you know, I was hooked up with this young gal. She got pregnant. And on my 18th birthday, the cops came in with 27 felonies. Stuck a gun in my mouth, told me not to move. And uh, they took me away. And they didn't take my girlfriend, but I, I wondered for a long, long time whatever happened to her, whatever happened to the baby, and nobody ever wrote me or told me. And when I finally got out of there, I uh, went to the family, and, and they, they wouldn't tell me nothing. They said, just stay away from her. You've done enough damage to our family, man. And there was a big hole in my life for a long time about that. You know, I married this gal right after that, after I got out of jail. She bailed me out of jail three times in one week. And I, I said, how come you keep bailing me out of jail? She looked at me with these big brown eyes, said, what else would I do? And I married her, you know? I love a woman who thinks like that, you know? <laughs> love a woman who thinks like that. God bless the pre Alanons, jeez. You know, I get all these jokes about Alanon. I love the Alanon family group, man. Is there any Alanons out here tonight? Hey. I want to thank you for keeping the world going while I was doing my thing. <laughs> you know, and I, uh, I went back to prison again after that for another year. And uh, when I got out, I had a real unreasonable parole officer who wanted me to get a job or something. And uh, I got my case transferred up to a little town in Oregon, and me and Kathy, we went on up there. And, and she told me she was pregnant, you know, and I got really excited about that. And uh, one day, February 23rd, we went out and uh, went to the North 
North Bend Hospital, and they took her in one room, and I sat in this bench, and after a while, they came out, and they brought this little boy, and they put him in my arms. And I looked at that little boy, man, and my heart exploded in my chest. I don't even know how to describe it. I'm sure a lot of you people know what I'm talking about. But if I, had, I didn't know nothing about love, man, you know. I've, uh, I respect fear a hell of a lot better than love. It lasts a lot longer in the world I come from, you know. But I, I heard people talk about it, but I, I really like my wife, but not like this, man. I put that baby in my arms, I felt head over heels, madly in love with another human being. And I looked at that boy and I promised him, I said, you know what, you're never gonna be afraid of nothing. We're gonna have everything. You're never gonna be afraid. You're my pal. And I meant it. You know, and I got off parole there and I went back down to California and after another year later, I'm sitting in another hospital and I, they come out and they bring this little girl and they put her in my arms and I, the same thing happened, man. Exactly the same. I looked at that little girl and my heart exploded in my chest, you know, and I'm looking at her, you know, and I don't know about y'all, but I'm a, I'm a real fast thinker. I think fast. I mean, I'll be in an A&A &A meeting, one of you pretty gals will walk in, we'll fall in love, get married, have a couple of kids. You'll cheat on me with that old timer. I hate your guts. You haven't even got to your chair yet, you know? <laughs> I'm looking at this little girl, man. And I'm thinking, you know what? Since it's a female, there's gonna be some man wanna marry her someday. And so I'm planning out the wedding, man. They haven't even waited her yet, you know? And you know, I, I wanted to be a good father more than anything in this world. That was, that was the highlight of my life. I think if there was anything better than being a father, God would have probably kept it for himself. And maybe he did, you know, but man, I love being a father. You know, altogether, I ain't gonna talk about all of them. I got nine kids. I adopted four of them and raised them from young ladies and into very successful young women, you know, and I've got five kids of my own. And I love being a father. You know, my kid, my oldest is 42, my youngest is 11. I just figured out what's causing it. <laughs> I sleep on the couch now. <clears throat> you know, my little boy, he's 11, he's my sunshine. You know, he was graduating for preschool. We went to his little graduation ceremony. And then right after that, I went over and watched my oldest grandson graduate from high school the same day. That was twilight zone, let me tell you. <laughs> You know, I wanted to be a good daddy. I wanted to so bad. I made a lot of money, man. I had all kinds of money. That was no problem. I bought a big place. Had a creek running through it. Brought my brother with me. My brother has always been with me. Anything I tell you about my brother, he was my right hand, Bill. And everything in my life was good. You know, my life was around my children. I, I worked once or twice a year. And uh, I worked hard, you know. And uh, I made a lot of money. It was September 6th of 1976. I was playing with Frisbee with my son in the yard. My daughter and my wife had gone to school. She closed shopping. School was getting ready to start. And a friend of mine came over and we visited and he left. And man, I wanted another beer. I was, it was hot that day. And I was, 
There was no one there but me and my boy. You know, and I, and I said, you know, just wait here, I'll be right back. And I got on my bike and I went up to go get, I got a six pack of beer and I come back down the road and the fire department's here and all the cops and all the neighbors are running towards my house. I found out my little boy had run out in the street chasing me on that motorcycle and he'd been run over by a truck, you know. And I got to that little boy and his head was split open and I could see his brains and uh, his ribs were sticking out of his chest. And a big piece of me died. You know, I sat in a hospital with that little boy in intensive care for nine months. And every day I don't know nothing about God. We never went to church in my life, you know, but I'd heard people talk about it. And I got outside of that hospital every night praying to that God give me back my boy and uh, I'll tell you my son his body survived he mentally and emotionally never grew past the age of about four years old and he couldn't talk and he couldn't hear and he had a lot of physical problems and he don't know if got home and my brother got real sick and uh, he came down with a disease called schizophrenia and they had him committed to a hospital he called me from that hospital after a couple of weeks. He said, get me out of here, man. I said, well, you okay? He says, yeah, just get me out of here, man. They're locked me in here. Just let, get me out of here. Do whatever you gotta do. And I went against my family. I went against the doctors, everything. I got my brother out of there. I brought him home. And we just kept doing what we were doing, you know? And I needed to go make some money. I put a little deal together. I was gonna go to New York. And I told my brother Bill, I said, Bill, I'll be back in three days. Watch the kid, watch, watch Dan Marie. And, uh, and he, he started shaking. He says, you better not go. I said, what are you talking about? He says, I don't know, something, I'm coming apart. Something's wrong. And I said, you know what, man? And I handed him a handful of money. Money's fixed everything all my life. And I said, you know what, Bill? It's been me and you all our life. Hang tight. I'll be back in three days and whatever this is, me and you'll take care of it. And I got in that cab and I took off and I looked into, I saw my brother holding my little girl's hand and my brother was crying and I've never seen my brother cry in my whole life. And uh, this thing I was doing, I got back to New York and it went sideways on me and instead of three days, I was gone for almost three weeks. When I got back home, I, uh, my daughter was waiting for me out in the driveway. And I said, where's my brother? And she goes, I ain't seen him, daddy. And uh, we went across that creek over here, a little mobile home over there. And I got up to his little mobile home and I opened his door and my brother's head rolled out of that trailer. And three days after I left, he had blown his head off. And uh, there was just a big pile of maggots laying in that doorway. And a big piece of me was like a branch breaking. You know, it was my very psyche completely just snapped. And I'll tell you this, from my heart to yours, that I thank God I'm an alcoholic. I don't tell you any of this because I want your sympathy or pity or flash or anything else. I'd just like to drive home one very pertinent point. In chapter five, it's read at every meeting and a lot of people just go right by it and they don't quite understand, you know, but there's a statement that says those, those among us who got here with grave emotional and mental disorders, you know, and that's who I am. I was an alcoholic before. My alcohol was in control, but after that time, my brain, if I, if I, 
If alcohol didn't do for me what it did for me, I would have joined my brother. But alcohol immediately just dissolves guilt. It immediately just takes away those pictures that are just branded right on the front of my brain. It allows me to lay down at night and get some rest. It stops the screaming in the morning. And it allows me to function one day at a time, reasonably comfortable. You know, first time I came to A&A &A and y'all read those promises, man, I thought you were talking about liquor. I don't know what the alcohol did for you, man, but those promises, man, that, that, that's the closest I've ever heard of what alcohol did for me. Things started happening, I couldn't stop drinking. My wife, uh, she ran off with a friend of mine, man. She was in her own pain. I'm not paying no attention to her, I'm just drinking. I'm just me and my little girl, my son's in this special hospital. And Janet Marie, she's just getting ready. She's just turned five years old and, and she's crying. She says, Daddy, what's going on? Everybody's dying, everybody's leaving. You're acting crazy. What's going on? What's gonna happen to me? And I put her up in my lap. I said, sugar, I said, nothing's going to happen to you. I said, you know, I don't need nobody. We just hit a bump in the road, man. I'm going to catch my breath in a minute, and you're going to be all right. I'll take care of everything. And I got her calmed down, and I got her put in bed. And about that time, this guy knocked on my door, an old buddy of mine. He came in, and he brought something that um, changed my life. I doubt if you have it. You guys all look like a real sophisticated bunch of drunks. In California, we call it Mad Dog 2020. I always call it Mad Dog 2020 an event drink. Every time I drink Mad Dog 2020, something happens. And when I was a wino, shuffling, panhandling, someone would offer me a battle of Mad Dog I drink it, but I always hesitate. I go, oh, this is gonna hurt. <laughs> so if there's any new people, you know, and you think maybe you're being a little bit too hard on yourself, and uh, you wanna go out there and try her again, get you some Mad Dog. <laughs> if you're an alcoholic like I am, it'll run your rusty ass back in these rooms so quick, you won't even know what happened, you know? Next thing I know, this lady said, excuse me, sir, you have to get off the airplane. I was in my living room, I thought. <laughs> <clears throat> I opened my eyes and I'm looking around. I'm on this big old jet airplane and uh, this lady's looking at me very perturbed. And uh, there's no one on the plane. I looked down, there's my little girl. She's cuddled up next to me. And I said, where am I? She said, you're in Fort Lauderdale. I said, can't be, man, I hate Fort Lauderdale. She goes, I don't know nothing about it. You gotta get off the airplane. I don't know what's up. I haven't got a clue. But you know, my kids here, I and mean, you can't look stupid. You know, and maybe she knows what we're doing here. So I woke her up and I said, we're here. She looked out the window and she said, oh, goody. And that's all she said. So, you know, I said, okay, uh, do the next indicated thing. I said, let's get caught a cab, I had plenty of money on me. I, I said, take me to a nice hotel and stop at a liquor store. I need to figure out what's happened here. And, uh, and I came to the next morning, butt naked, 
and four point restraints on this gurney in this room and the walls were this comforting green. I've been in prison in three different countries and uh, they paint them all the same color. And uh, just for a second, I thought I missed something really cool though, you know? But I found out it was a mistake, you know? It was just a misunderstanding. Um, apparently, I, I met this young couple and they were partying in the same hotel I was and they had this local additive, man, they could really drink with that stuff. And, I was drinking Jack and they were drinking uh, tequila and then we drank their liquor and used all their stuff up and drank my liquor and I said, hey, y'all ever heard about some Mad Dog 2020? And they went, no. I felt like a missionary, you know. <clears throat> Baptized them too and, uh, <laughs> and apparently about three o'clock in the morning in this nice hotel, I'm down in the lobby butt naked trying to introduce myself to this young lady. You know, I'm from Southern California. That ain't no big deal. You know, they're very conservative back in this part of the country. They called the cops. Caught, I just went nuts on them. They didn't know what to make of me. They took me to county mental health, gave me some Thorazine and calmed me right down. I got next morning. I go and they send me in to talk to the psychiatrist. I say, you know what? This is a big mistake, man. I just got here, and if you let me out of here, I will be gone out of the state before the sun sets. And uh, he says, get out of here, go. And I was gone, and I got walked outside, and here comes that couple with uh, my little girl. She comes up, jumps in my arm, and says, Daddy, where were you? I said, baby, I told you this place sucks. We're getting out of Florida. And um, I'd love to tell you that was it, man, but that was just the beginning of a very long, long journey, and I'm gonna go into all of it. But I'll tell you, for the next three years, me and my little girl, we lived all through the South, and everywhere we lived, it was gonna be different. I was gonna get her in school, I was gonna get her in this, I was gonna to go to church, I was gonna get a job. I've never done anything, you know, I don't, not many gangsters for hire out of the newspaper, you know. No amateur pharmacists, no gunslingers, no money counters. I looked, they weren't hiring, you know, so I do what I always do. And uh, every place I lived, I left in a dead run. The last place was in Oklahoma City, and I hurt a man real bad there. And I uh, came back and I stole his truck and I grabbed my little girl. We got down to the bus station in Oklahoma City and I had enough ticket. I got two tickets to California and I got me a bottle of wine, got on there and drank my wine and passed out. I come to the next morning, we're in Albu just pulling into Albuquerque and my little girl is just rocking back and forth and she's crying. I said, what's the matter? She says, Daddy, I'm so hungry, you haven't fed me. So as soon as we stop, baby, I'll get you something to eat. And we stopped this, I went in this liquor store and I got her a little sandwich and I got me a bottle of wine. I was real sick, I was shaking and uh, And I got up to go pay for it and I only had enough money to pay for one or the other. And I had to put her sandwich back, you know. I've done a lot of things in this world that I would never share from this podium with very few people. But I've never done anything in my life that shamed me more than that moment. I couldn't look at her, I walked by her, I just went to the back of the bus. And she was just sitting there all by herself. And God bless her, there was this elderly black lady sitting right across from us, and she was the sweetest thing. She looked over at my little girl, she says, baby, she goes, my daughter made me this big lunch and I gotta go all the way to California. I hate riding alone, why don't you sit with me? And she took care of my little girl all the way back. We got into California and I do what all heroes do at the end of the road, you know, I went to mom's house. 
told you a little bit about my mom, but you have not grasped exactly who she is. I watched her stab my daddy three different times. And one time a neighbor was yelling at me about something. She snuck up behind him and knocked him cold, put him in a hospital with a flathead shovel. And uh, you gotta respect a woman like that. In fact, you better respect a woman like that, you know? <clears throat> my mama, she takes no prisoners, man. She eats the babies. She's got no Al-Anon tendency whatsoever. She can release you so quick. <laughs> she looked at me. She hadn't heard nothing from us in a long, long time. She didn't know if we were dead or alive. And her granddaughter was the apple of her eyes, the only granddaughter of all of her children. She had lots of grandsons, but that was the only one, her only girl. And, uh, she opened that door and she saw her granddaughter standing there and she had this dirty ragged dress on, her hair was raggedy and holding on this raggedy old doll and this raggedy old pillow. She looked at me with a hate. I've never seen her look at anybody in this world. She grabbed my girl, she pulled her in the house. She said, you get off my property. If you ever come near either one of us again, I'll kill you. And I knew she wasn't joking, you know, and I left, you know. The rest of my stories all hearsay. I know where I live. I lived in a, in a, in a bamboo pass below a restaurant right on the Pacific Ocean. And a septic tank drained down into this bamboo and nobody would go in there because it smelled real bad. And I walk across the Pacific Coast High right there. There was a, a little 7-Eleven and a, and a biker bar. And I go panhandle for wine there until I got enough money for a bottle of wine. I go back to my bush. If I couldn't get no money, I'd stand at the doorway of that bar and wait till someone ordered a pitcher of beer and went to the bathroom and I'd run in and drink as much of it as I could before someone came out and beat the hell out of me, you know? I knew about going to any lengths long before I came to AA, you know? And uh, and that's the way I lived. You know, and I, I went to, to, to jail on that corner 52 times for drunk in public. Um, I was in the hospital seven different times. I was in county mental health about 15 different times. And uh, and that's all I did, I just drank. You know, I hear people, they talk about having blackouts. I don't know, I, I lived in a blackout for years. I had whiteouts. That's, you come to someplace like, like right now, just like right now, everybody's looking at you. You go, oh. <laughs> and then it fades, and you're somewhere else. <laughs> and I was standing out in front of this, uh, liquor store, I was sick of the dog one morning, I was shaking real bad, I knew I was gonna go into convulsion if I didn't get a drink pretty quick, and I, I had 68 cents, the short dog cost 87 cents, I couldn't get another penny, I couldn't talk, I was shaking, and this guy pulled up in this four-door sedan, he's got this square little wife sitting next to him, and this square little kid sitting in the back, he gets out of there, he's got short hair, you know, he's wearing a three-piece suit, and wingtips, man, I looked, I can, I can get him to live like that, man, you know. But who am I to judge, what the hell, you know? And he got up to me, man, he just looked at me and he said, will this help? And he gave me two $1 bills. I damn near knocked him over, man. I ran in there, got me a quart of wine, another short dog, and came out and drank that short straight down and held my face against that glass because it was cold and just till the shaking just stopped and I could catch my breath. When I opened my eyes, I saw that family sitting in that car. I could see the reflection in that glass and I, they were talking, I knew they were talking about me. I turned around and I cursed them, flipped them off, and I took my bottle of wine back down to my hooch. You know, I found out those people are good friends of mine today. The man has passed away since then, but they were 
They were good people. They were on the way to the temple to, to worship the God of their understanding that morning. And they weren't talking about me. They were praying for me. That's what they were doing. And I didn't talk about religion. It's got no business in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I know damn well those people prayed me. I got down on that thing and I, I'm sucking on that bottle of wine and out of nowhere, man, I just had this thought, maybe, maybe I ought to go to A&A. I've been to A&A. And all the different detoxes and you know, and there's lots of activity in AA around where I live and there's always some 90 day wonder wanting to save my soul down to the beach. And, uh, and I, I tell these people, man, I ain't no alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. I just can't afford any drugs. <laughs> they'd laugh at me just like y'all, and they said, well, if you ever find yourself drinking, you don't want to be drinking, you come to A&A, we would love you, you can love yourself. <laughs> Guy said that to me, I almost smacked it, you know? And um, that's about the lamest thing anybody's ever said in my life to me. But you know what, I, I don't know how, I, I have absolutely no rec recollection but it was one of those whiteouts and I came to. And I'm standing at the back of this room and all these people are looking at me and these guys standing at this podium, he looks at me and he said, are you looking for AA? And I nodded my head he said, would you like to ident identify yourself? Now I've been drinking wine around the clock for a long time. I have no communication beyond panhandling and uh, that's my biggest social activity of the day. And uh, I had forgotten how to talk. I would get, I'd have epiphanies, great thoughts, but what would come out was ah, you know, and, and they said, would you like to interfere yourself? Everyone was looking at me, man. I got nervous and I went ah. And the guy looked at me and said, he smiled. He said, welcome, come on in, have a seat. And um, Says y'all gonna love me till I can love myself. I saw this pretty little gal there. I scooted right up to her. Man, she looked in terror and ran for her sponsor. And uh, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at these people, man. And you know, they're all clean cut. I'm looking around, it looks more like I'm at a PTA meeting or something, you know? You know, I've been growing hair for 20 some years. And my hair come down past my ass. My beard came down to my belly button. I weighed about 10 pounds, you know? And uh, I got a lot of things on me that shouldn't be. And uh, guy said, you got something moving out of your beard there. I said, leave it alone and eat the fleas. <laughs> and I'm looking at these people and they're looking at me, man. And I, they felt I had a distinct odor. I, a lot of things weren't important anymore. And uh, I'm sitting there and they're, they're talking about God. And I'm going, oh man. And they said, they saw him pass a basket, and I went, oh, here we go, they're gonna start singing. And uh, I'm listening to this guy talk, he's sharing stuff, man, you don't share that around a bunch of people. I got so embarrassed for this fool, I gotta get out of here. You know, I stood up, I said, I need a drink. And uh, when I stood up, there was this little gal, she'd been looking at me from the minute I walked in that room. She kept smiling at me and grinning, you know, and I didn't know what the hell was up with her, but. When I stood up to leave, there was some guy talking. She stood up and she cut that guy off cold. She started walking toward me. She goes, hey, she goes, don't leave. She goes, I walked in these rooms 27 years ago in Long Beach, California. 
cops dropped me off, said they're tired of arresting me, go in there, maybe those folks can help you. So I walked in the back of that room, the meeting had started, I looked at all these squares and I knew as soon as they turned around, saw me and saw what I was, they'd run me off, but they didn't want me around their men. She goes, I've been on the streets of Los Angeles since I was 13 years old and I've done everything a woman had to do to survive. And when I saw you people, I felt dirty and I wanted to leave. But this lady grabbed hold of me and brought me into the room and got me a cup of coffee. She said, honey, don't go nowhere, we need you. This lady talked about 27 years of continuous sobriety. She talked about a woman who grabbed her and got her involved with a group of women who taught her how to be a woman. She talked about a sponsor that took her through the steps and got her involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. And she came over right in front of all those people who didn't know what to make of me. And she grabbed hold of me and she pulled my head down. This old gal kissed me right on the mouth, the bravest woman I've ever met in my life, man. And she starts squeezing on my neck, man. She's holding on my neck. She's a tiny little thing, you know? And, I, you know, ain't nobody in this world ever made me cry about nothing. And this old gal, she gets down, she whispers in my ear. She goes, baby, she goes, don't go nowhere, please. We need you desperately. Please don't leave. And she said that to me. My eyes started watering up. I started sobbing like a little schoolgirl right in front of the PTA, you know? And I started coming to A&A. And y'all lied to me right from the beginning, you know? A bunch of you said, well, just don't drink and go to meetings. That might be fine for a problem drinker, you know? There ain't nothing in that book that says, just don't drink and go to meetings. I said, these are the steps we took. And I, I, I just wouldn't drink and I'd go to meetings. And I had about three days without a drink, I would be absolutely stark raving sober. You know, and uh, I couldn't figure how do you ever go to sleep? How do you stop the screaming? You know, how do you stop shaking? And everything is so real, you know? And I'd have to drink, you know? And I kept doing this over and over. About a year, a friend guy says, you gotta get a sponsor. I knew what that was by that time. I said, no, I'm, <laughs> no, I've been on parole half my life. I'm not gonna vop one of these dudes, you know? I don't need that. And he said, well, you gotta take these steps. I looked at those steps. None of those steps applied to me. First of all, they tried to tell me I was powerless. I've been carrying a gun since I was 14 years old. <clears throat> I ain't powerless. And he says, you know, since my life's unmanageable, I like it that way. Mediocrity's my greatest fear, you know? I hate knowing what's gonna happen next. Got to this next thing, talked about God, don't nothing to do that. I cried out to your God many times. You never cut me no slack. You know, keep your God. I talked about this other thing. I said, what the heck's this about? He says, well, you've got to write down everything that you've ever done and share it with another human being. I fell out of my chair laughing on that one. You know, I don't know about y'all, but I'm a career criminal, man. And I pride myself in no paper trails in the majority of my activities. Now you want me to write it all down and share it with the PTA. That ain't gonna happen, you know? And uh, I, I drove right by that one. I said, well, what the defects? I don't know what that means, you know? And I go, what's this? What does amends mean? He goes, you gotta go face everybody you've ever harmed and go make it right. Oh, yeah. Loopy, don't shoot, man. I'm sorry I shot you and your brother and your dog and took all your stuff, man, but I'm in a spiritual manner of living today. <laughs> he is gonna be so impressed, you know? 
I, I, I didn't have an expense account, <laughs> you know? I, I, I wonder what y'all had, but I don't come from your planet, you know? And, and, uh, and I just kept coming to AA, man, I loved it. I come to that Thursday night workshop in Carlsbad, and there was just the, and it still is. There was real members of Alcoholics Anonymous there. You know, I came to that meeting drunk for so long. There was a lot of people stopped sticking their hand out, started looking down on me. But there's another group of people who never, they I'd hit that door no matter what the condition, man. They would walk over and welcome me. And, you know, I break his hand and he Cliff Roach, man, he was my hero. That man welcomed me in under any conditions and he always looked happy to see me. And he'd come and get me a seat. And he'd get me a full cup of coffee because I was shaking bad. I found out later, he's just really a sick man. He just liked to watch me shake that coffee all over me. <laughs> you, know? you know, and his sponsor and Margie, and there, there was a skip, and there was a whole bunch of them, man. And they would always, when I'd walk in, they'd make me feel so important, like I was the most important person in the room. And that's what brought me back. I couldn't hear what you were saying. That's what brought me back to the room because someone never stopped sticking their hand out to me. They didn't judge me. They loved me because I was an alcoholic. They didn't even expect me to get sober and that wasn't even important. Important thing when I showed up there. You know, and I came to those meetings for so long and you know, my last drunk was in a, I come to Christmas morning in 1984. I got in a fight with the cops one more time and they always cheat, you know, they call their friends and uh, <laughs> try using a club on a cop, see what happens, you know, chemical warfare, all kinds of stuff they pull on you, you know, and they beat me down. Firestone takes care of the cars that take care of all of us, whether it's making sure pizza night goes off without a hitch or making the neighborhood safer for everyone. We help the people that help the people. Firestone complete all of it. And they broke both cheekbones and they hogtied me. I was butt naked in that rubber room and my face had been bleeding and I dried and my face was stuck to the mat the next morning. I'm trying to peel my face off the mat and I roll over and look up at the portholes. You know, these cops were all looking at me laughing. You know, and I just knew Santa Claus wasn't coming. You know, you know, they let me out of there that day. They said, you know, they knew me on a first name basis. They said, Merry Christmas, Skip, we'll see you later. And they let me out. And I made a conscious decision. I'm going back to A&A. You know, I, I am that person they talk about. I'm tired of it. I was talking drunk. I'm going to go. The only thing that don't lie to me is alcohol. That is the only thing that stops that screaming. It's the only thing that stops that incredible, overwhelming, that would have been a tangible thing. It would have eaten me alive, loneliness. It's just the loneliest human being on the face of the earth. I would take that away. I started drinking on, on January 6th. The worst thing that ever happened since I landed here, you know, that was a day. I've been drinking around the clock. And my body was as absolute drunk as you could possibly get a body drunk, but my mind was crystal clear. The pain, the loneliness, the terror, the regret, the guilt were more powerful than it had ever been before. And alcohol had stopped doing these things. Yeah, I didn't stop drinking. 
alcohol quit me. I didn't quit it, you know. And, and when I realized, man, I, I could not, I could not even imagine another day like that, you know. And I pulled out my gun and I put it up to my chest and I pulled the trigger and I blew my left lung and two ribs out and knocked me across the room. I'm leaning against this wall and blood's flying everywhere and the only thought I got is thank God this nightmare is over with, let me out of here. Then I come to her in this hospital. You thought I died, didn't you? <laughs> I love it. If made a drink is to die, but only if you're lucky. <laughs> beat me down, they broke both cheekbones and they hog-tied me, I was butt-naked in that rubber room and my face had been bleeding and I dried and my face was stuck to the mat the next morning. I'm trying to peel my face off the mat and I roll over and look up at the portholes, you know, these cops were all looking at me laughing, you know, and I just knew Santa Claus wasn't coming. You know, you know, they let me out of there that day. They said, you know, they knew me on a first-name basis, said, Merry Christmas, Kip, we'll see you later, and they let me out. I made a conscious decision, I ain't going back to A&A. You know, I, I am that person they talk about. I'm tired of being else token drunk. I'm gonna go, the only thing that don't lie to me is alcohol. That is the only thing that stops that screaming. It's the only thing that stops that incredible, overwhelming, it would have been a tangible thing. It would have eaten me alive, loneliness. You know, it's just the loneliest human being on the face of the earth. And it would take that away. I started drinking on January 6th. The worst thing that ever happened since I landed here, you know, that was a day. I've been drinking around the clock. And my body was as absolute drunk as you could possibly get a body drunk, but my mind was crystal clear. The pain, the loneliness, the terror, the regret, the guilt were more powerful than I'd ever been before. And alcohol had stopped doing these things. See, I didn't stop drinking. Alcohol quit me, I didn't quit it, you know. And, and when I realized, man, I, I could not, I could not even imagine another day like that, you know. And I pulled out my gun and I put it up to my chest and I pulled the trigger and I blew my left lung and two ribs out and knocked me across the room. I'm leaning against this wall and blood's flying everywhere and the only thought I got is thank God this nightmare is over with, let me out of here. And then I come to her in this hospital. You thought I died, didn't you? <laughs> I love it, I for me to drink is to die, only if you're lucky. <laughs> I won't die, I'll be a 299 year old wino, needing six more cents for a bottle of wine. <clears throat> last 25 years, I could have got a guarantee I would have died if I drank. I probably would have drank, you know, but I know I ain't gonna die. Not that easy. This old man in A&A, I hated his guts. His name was Charlie Tuck. He was an old gangster from Chicago, the stockyards. <clears throat> he came in to me in a meeting one of those times I come in, he got right down dead in my face, looked me right in the eye, said, you think you're pretty tough, don't you, kid? I looked him right in the eye, I said, Charlie, I'm tough enough, don't you ever doubt that. He said, you ain't tough. He said, you're the scariest son of a bitch in this room. Now that might make you dangerous, but it sure don't make you tough. And he walked away laughing at me. I avoided that man like the plague, you know? Every time I'd go into one of these A&A meetings, I'd look in all the windows, make sure he wasn't there, you know? 
And I'm coming, I'm dead, right? You know, and I, I hear in this deep voice, he had this deep gravelly voice. I hear this voice and I open my eyes and, and there's Charlie standing at the foot of the dumb newcomers and their eyes were as big as saucers and, and I went, oh God, I've died, I've gone to hell and this is it. In a gurney, chained to a gurney with this old fool preaching A and A all eternity with these two dummies looking at me, you know? And Charlie didn't say a word to me, man. He just looked at me and he smiled. And he put his arm around these two young fellas. He says, fellas, I want you to pay attention. I want you to get, get up there and look at this guy. Get up close to him. Look at his eyes. Look at him. Now come back here. And they come back and he says, now, you pay attention. Because this is what happens to an alcoholic who refuses to take the steps. Come on, let's go. And they left I felt cheap and used, you know. <laughs> I was in that hospital until April, and um, I got out, and nothing worked. And I, they had taken my gun, wouldn't give it back. Liquor didn't work, and their dope didn't work, and nothing worked. I just wanted to die so bad. I wanted things to stop so bad. And I come to on May 12th the same way I've come to a thousand times. I come to in the very first conscious thought with my eyes open is I need to get something in my body fast. And all of a sudden, God did something for me that day. And I know how blessed, I, I know I know how fortunate I am. I never, ever take it for granted. I had a moment of clarity that day that was so crystal clear. I said that I'm an alcoholic, you know. I'm reading it, when I hear, when I woke up, I was hearing the ABCs, the thread of, at the end of chapter five. You know, and I'm thinking, I'm, I know I'm an alcoholic. The state of, Cal I got paperwork from the state of California. You know, at that time, the state of California was in the process of, make, of making me a ward of the state. And I was 36 years old. It became quite apparent to everybody I was a danger to myself and others. And they're getting ready to give me this card, you know, that I just, when I had an episode, I like that, that they would just put me back in a Tascadero, you know. And, and after I was better, they would release me and I could get uh, my social security. I could get all these benefits and I wouldn't have to go to jail no more. I could just go to institutions and I love institutions. They're co-educational and everything else, man, they're great. And, uh, and those people care. They're not like those prison guards. But uh, so I know I'm an alcoholic, but you know, in the big book, it doesn't say that. It says, in my innermost self. What does that word mean? What does it really mean to my innermost self? Not what I admit to you or you call me or whatever. In here where I live where nobody can see. What does that mean? That I'm powerless over alcohol. What does that word mean? Alcoholic. And God gave me that vision. It was that morning that my daughter was born. And I felt that love as strong that morning as I've ever felt it before. It brought tears to my eyes. I hadn't felt that love in so long. And then immediately it flipped to that old man walking by his little girl starving with a paper bag with a bottle of wine in it. And I finally understood.
the powerless means that alcohol, I'm, alcohol is my master. Once I take a drink of alcohol, alcohol owns me body and soul. Alcohol will tell me where I can go. It tells me when I can go to bed. It tells me when I gotta get up. It tells me who I can hang with. It, it, it runs every aspect of my life. There's not any room for me to love a child or love anything or any morals or anything. I will do whatever I have to do to get another drink of alcohol. And I finally understood that. You know, and then that next part said that no human power was ever going to be able to fix me. I hope one of you girls were going to fix me. Some of you tried. You know, if you hear this or you're here, you know, you should sure listen to your sponsor. Got to the part I've been avoiding since I got here. It says, you know, it says that the, this God thing. So the God couldn't, would if you were sorry. I've been dodging that since I walked in here. You know, I, I got on my knees that morning and I said, you know what? I don't know who you are and I don't know what you are. But from this point on, I'll do anything that you put in front of me if I don't have to drink today. And if you're not there, I'm screwed. And all I know is that God gave me something that very moment that I still have this very moment. And that was a knowing right down to the very fiber of my being that if I can hold on to that as tight as I can, I wasn't going to have to drink. And I got over to Charlie Tuck's house. Where else am I going to go? You know, that old man brought me in, man. He detoxed me old school, man. He was an old school AA man. Detoxed me on whiskey, caro syrup, and orange juice, and, and normalpy. He had real-to-real taste, man. Six hours of normalpy, you know, over and over and over. And the guys he sponsored would come in, and they would sit with me and tell me their stories. And they would clean me up when I'd mess myself. And they'd hold me when I'd go into convulsions, you know. And they would tell me their story. And I don't know these guys. I don't know what they're doing, you know. But they, they never, I was never alone. There was always someone there. And I slowly started getting better. You know, on the fifth day, Charlie walked into that room and he looked at me and I wasn't shaking. And he said, all right, Alcoholics Anonymous is a program of action. Are you ready? I said, yes, sir. He said, get in the car. I thought that was the first step in AA for the next eight years. You know, everything started with get in the car. And uh, <laughs> we went down to 111 Island Street down San Diego county detox. I, I've gotten sober there probably a hundred times. I know everybody in there. I know all the staff by first name. And uh, they walked me in there and, and he goes, what are we doing here? He says, we're going to go carry the message. I said, what do I got carry? He says, you got five days. And I walked in there. Charlie did his pitch and he said, I want to introduce you to my friend Kip. And, and he introduced me. And I did my thing, you know, and I, I just told these guys, I don't know a lot about it, but you know, it ain't no big deal. I haven't had a drink for five days. What the big deal is this? I haven't wanted to take a drink in five days. And I don't understand it, but I'm telling you, I'm gonna hang tight to these people, man, because they got something, I don't know what it is, but I'm sure tired of living the way I've been living. And I walked out of there and Charlie says, how do you feel? I said, what do you mean? I goes, how do you feel now? He says, I said, that's the most powerful feeling I've ever had in my life. He goes, that's the music of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you ain't giving this away, you ain't got it. And that old man, he got me active. He took me through those 12 steps within the first five months of my recovery through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He got me involved in service. I had to be at a meeting every single night, shake hands with all the men, the women. I could hug the men. 
He says, you can't borrow any money from anybody. You don't borrow any cigarettes from anybody. Don't tell anyone anything about you unless they ask. Ask how they're doing, you know? And I had to have commitments at this meeting and that meeting. I had to be in a book study, a step study, a men's meeting at all times. You know, and I had to have commitment at all these meetings. I'm coming up on 90 days. I said, I almost got 90 days. He says, so what? We go 90 and 90. But show me that in the book. That ain't a book. Came out of a treatment center. Don't pay any attention to that. So I was in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous for the next eight years. I didn't get any breaks, man. And, uh, you know, things in my life happened, man. I took those steps. I followed those actions. I got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, and things in my life flourished quickly, you know. They told me I had to get a job. I don't know how to do anything. He goes, do you know how to pray? I said, yeah. He said, tell God you need to learn a trade, man. It's time for you to learn how to support yourself. So I got down on my knees. He said, God, Charlie says I need a trade. I'll take whatever you got. I walked out. I lived right by the street, and I, I stuck my thumb out, and this pickup rolled up. And the guy rolled down his window and said, hey, you want a job? He scared me to death, you know? I said, what is it? He goes, it's painting. I said, I don't know how to paint. He goes, I'll teach you. I said, I ain't got a car. He said, my shop's across the street from here. He says, you get there, I'll get you to and from. I said, okay, I tell Charlie. I said, okay, Charlie, I, I have a career. He says, what is it? He goes, it's painting. He goes, that's a good job for you. You don't have to think very much. You're going to go for, work for that man. You're going to make a commitment to me, to God, and everyone else. You're going to work for him for a minimum of two years. You'll do anything he tells you to do as long as it's legal, moral, and ethical. You'll be the very first person on the job. You'll work every hour he asks you to work, and you will never, under any condition, ask him what he's paying you because it's none of your business. And that's the way he laid it out for me, man. And I'm going to tell you, as a result of that type of sponsorship, things in my life happened fast. By the time I was 10 years sober, when I was three years sober, the state of California gave me my driver's license and I married this wonderful woman. I got my children back. I got my daughter back. I got my little boy back. These people, I got to know these men who had a handicapped children and they taught me how to be a father of a brain damaged children and they got me involved in these schools and the special olympics and all these different things you know and i became part of his life when i was three years sober i get a phone call and this gal said is your name kip i said yeah she goes you're my father i've been looking for you for a long long time and i want you to meet your grandchildren that girl that was born all those years ago when i was locked up you know she came into my life and brought me three beautiful grandchildren you know, I got to make amends to them. She came into my life. You know, after a little bit after that, I ended up in the, I, I adopted two other girls and I raised them well, until they went to college. They, they went off to college. But, you know, at 10 years sober, I had it on. I own a painting contracting business. I got about 50 men working for me full time. I got the big house. I got the boats. I got the trucks. I got it on sponsor in San Diego. I'm speaking all over the world. You know, I just came back from Australia. I spoke over there and I came back and I'm looking at my home and everything and I'm going, how do you get from there to here? How do you get from there to here? And I opened up the front page, man. The front page story, man, is a story about a man broke into this woman's house and raped her all night long in front of her children. When he was done with her, he, took, he cut her to pieces. And it was my daughter. I'll tell you something, man, I'm absolutely perfectly capable of first-degree murder. You touch anything of mine. And I went to that hospital, and she had lost her face, her breast, and her left arm. She was still alive. 
and I want a vengeance, and I can't talk about it, man. I, 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 he's in jail. It's perfect. I know lots of people in jail. They're going to take care of this for me. All I got to do is write his name down. I can't talk to nobody. I can't go to meetings. I can't share this stuff. It's just ice cold inside of me. When I walk in these rooms and I ask Charlie to sponsor, he laid it out to me right then and there. He said, this is the way it is for you, man. People like you die in institutions, you die on the side of the road. God has opened a window for you, and I suggest you step through. And from this day forward, absolutely nothing, no woman, no job, no child, no nothing in this world can ever become more important than what you have to do to maintain your sobriety. And son, that's a hell of a lot more than just going to AA meetings. And he was right. And I, I am absolutely nuts, and I'm looking in that book for a loophole, man. There ain't no loophole. If you've got a little resentment about someone, all it says that you're an alcoholic and that is poison for you. It'll kill you. It doesn't say unless they rape your daughter. It just says that if I harbor such feelings, it'll cut me off from God and the insanity will return. I'll have to drink. When you come in here, they ask you, are you willing to go to any lengths? When you're near, you have absolutely no idea what that means. But everyone in this room is going to have a midnight. A lot of you have already had a midnight. And you've been coming to AA and you're sober and your life is wonderful. And someday something's going to come up in your life that is absolutely so unacceptable to you. And you're going to be all alone. There ain't going to be no one around. And you're going to get to find out if there's any conditions about you being sober. You're going to get to find out what willing to go to absolutely any length means. And I got down on my knees and the hardest thing I've ever done was to pray for that animal to have everything out of life I wanted. And I did that for 20 days like the book suggests. And I'm not saying the forgiveness, but the insanity came, left. I was able to go talk to men about it. I was able to start crying about it. I was able to start feeling about it. And I was able to go be a father and a grandfather because that was my job. And when my daughter needed me the most, thank you from the Alcoholics Anonymous, I had the resources and the people to help her and help my grandchildren. And I didn't have to drink and I didn't have to hurt nobody. And I got through that. Right after that, they told me I had cancer. They want to cut off my lips. I like my lips. <clears throat> Love kissing girls, man. I think I'd miss them. And my sponsor, he said, go to another doctor, you got money. I went to three different doctors. I finally found this one, Dr. Asher, he's a plastic surgeon. And he did this surgery on my lower lip. And he took a lot of it out. And uh, he said, well, you know, are you allergic to any kind of medication? I said, anything that affects me from the neck up. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I can't take any of your drugs that makes me high. He goes, you can't go through this, man. Your lips are all nerves. I said, I don't care. I'd rather die of the cancer. I'm not playing no games, man. I'm walking through an incredibly emotional part of my life. It's painful. And if I hide from that pain, I don't know if I'll ever start to get sober again. See, I'm not real smart, and I ain't telling you what to do with your medication. That's your business. My wife won't leave me if you get loaded, you know? I don't play no games. The only thing I know is that no matter what I gotta do to stay sober, it's easier to stay sober than it is to get sober again. That's all I know, man. I burned up most of my brain cells on cheap wine, but I know that for a fact. You know, and I, and I didn't have to use their dope. All the guys I sponsored came over and took care of me, and a bunch of old rowdy convicts, man, I'm all sewed up, and they tried to tell me jokes to make me laugh, the sick bastards, you know? 
but they stuck with me, man, those guys stuck with me. I got through that, you know, and uh, this woman I love, man, I came home one day and she was crying. I said, what's the matter? She goes, I can't do this no more. I said, what are you talking about? She goes, I'm gonna drink. I can't live this lie. I go, Connie, what are you talking about? She goes, Kip, I'm a lesbian. I'm in love with Chrissy and I'm leaving. I didn't think she was gonna tell me that. I thought I forgot to take the trash out, you know? I didn't, you know, if you hit me with something that I don't know what to do, I react with anger, you know? I will scare you, you know? Because especially if I think you might hurt me, I will scare, terrify you so you won't hurt me. And I started calling her all kinds of names, threatening, and I just went nuts, you know? And I had joined the Catholic Church by then, and she was Catholic, and I went over to go see my priest, Father Bill Wilson, you know? And uh, he was a sober member of Alcoholics, 28 years, man. He was like uh, from Ireland. And I went over to the parish and I'm talking to him and I'm telling him this stuff. And he's looking at me, he goes, oh, oh, poor. She says, oh, you must feel like life has screwed you square in the ass. <laughs> I said, that's it, Father, that's exactly what I feel. So what do you think? He says, I think you make me sick. And, stuff. and he's looking at me, he goes, oh, oh, poor Kip. She says, oh, Kip, you must feel like life has screwed you square in the ass. <laughs> I said, that's it, Father, that's exactly what I feel. So what do you think? He says, I think you make me sick. She says, you ever read that book you're talking about? Always talking about that book. You ever read it? And I go, what are you talking about? She says, well, why don't you try reading page 61? You know, the guy that thought he could wrest satisfaction out of life if he did everything just right. He goes, you tell me all these wonderful things you did for her. You took care of her children, you gave her this, you gave her that. Did you do that because you loved her and it was your job or was there some kind of hook in it? Because when you give something to someone you love, there's no hooks. He says, can you imagine the courage it took for her to come and face you? How much easier it would have been for her to leave? He goes, you have enough trouble with your own sexuality. You're not, you're, she's not your property. I said, so what do I do? He says, she's been a good wife. She's a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You give her anything she wants. And she took my boat. <laughs> I love that boat. <sighs> you know, and she kept my last name. She's married to that gal now. They kept my last name. They called, tell her one, they're my sisters, you know? I got no problem with it, you know. I didn't know you could have a relationship. But see, me and Connie's relationship, it wasn't based on sex. She was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's what I fell in love with, with her commitment to AA and what kind of a woman she was, you know. And I got to find out that I could still love her, but I could allow the relationship to change in a complete different direction that I never planned on. And she's one of my favorite people today. You know, we, we, gave, we got sober on the same day. We give cakes to each other every single year, and sometimes she babysits for me. Wonderful woman. You know, I got through that, I didn't have to drink. Right after that, I got attacked by a dog, almost tore my arm completely off. I couldn't work. I ended up, I lost my business, I lost my home, I lost everything in the world, down to the pickup truck I had, my dog and my son. And then my son got sick, and I sat in the hospital with him. And on October 4th, he died in my arms. And, uh, and that's when I got to experience what the promises really mean. It says in the book, he says, we will know serenity. See, I know what serenity is. 
I've experienced it. I experience it on a daily basis. Serenity isn't it watching a beautiful sunset, you know, with a beautiful gal with a pocket full of cash, but it's nice, you know. Serenity is watching the things that you love the very most die and leave and hurting more than you know is humanly possible to hurt. But at the same time, at exactly the same time, in your heart of hearts, knowing without a shadow of doubt that it's God's business and God don't make mistakes. He just don't make any mistakes. And my job is not to judge any of it. I, I can hurt and I can pain and I should grieve when something leaves. That's part of the human's experience. He goes, but I don't have to live there. You know, and, and everything was gone. It was just me. I said, what am I going to do? He said, I said, you know, I really need to, I'd like to get involved with a gal. I'd really like to have a relationship. He goes, Kip, he says, stop. It's absolutely possible for an alcoholic to have a relationship if they need to be in one. That is not a relationship. You're just looking for some woman to validate you as a man. You've been hurt tragically, your own sexuality. You need to stay away from women until you don't need a woman to validate you. I said, can I date? He said, keep it light. And I did. And I, he said, I want you to go to school. You only went to the seventh grade. I want you to go to college. I said, I don't know how to do that. I said, it's easy. It's just like AA. The teacher's your sponsor. The answers are in the book. You suit up and show up. That's all you gotta do. Follow directions. Make a commitment, just like you do in AA. Just do the same thing to school. And I did that, and I went to school. You know, and I stayed away from women, and uh, I got a, a degree, and it changed my life. You know, and this one woman, she took advantage of me one time. I'm weak. <laughs> she was just desperate, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was nothing, man. It was just nothing. It was like a one-night thing, and, uh, and I'm in school, and... One day, I was, it was on a Sunday, I was sitting there, I had a pot of beans going, I put a sheet of cornbread in, it was just me and the dog. We were watching a ball game, and this gal called, she said, hey, Kip, she goes, you've been alone a long time. She said, yeah, she goes, well, I'm just thinking, maybe I, why don't you come on over and I'll make you dinner, maybe we can mess around. I'm whoa. She said, I'm very flattered, but I got a pot of beans going on, and a sheet of cornbread, and I'm watching this game, and maybe I'll take a rain check. She hung up on me, and I went, Oh, well. And then I went, wow, where'd that come from? I have never missed an opportunity like that in my life. I mean, that is completely an unnatural act, you know? And uh, I went, that's what he was talking about. As much as I love women, I think you guys were the greatest thing God ever came up with besides alcohol. <clears throat> but I don't need any of you to validate me. I don't need you to make me happy. I am really comfortable with Kip. I like Kip. I like hanging out with him, you know? And you guys can add to it, but I sure don't need you. And I went, that is so cool, man. I love this. And I said, but God, be your true, true. If it be your will, I would love to experience true will at least once more. But if not, that's cool. The next day, I get a phone call. This lady says, she got in a car wreck last night. She, she was drunk, she has massive brain damage. She's never getting out of the hospital. I said, wow. I couldn't figure out why she was calling me, you know, but I said, I haven't seen this girl in over a year. And she goes, I said, is there anything I can do to help? She goes, yeah, you can come and pick up your daughter. I said, my daughter, what are you talking about? She goes, you don't know, do you? I said, no, what? She goes, you got a three month old daughter. I'm not raising any more kids and you need to come and get it or tell me what you want to do. And I went, Okay, I said, where do you, 
where are you? She goes, I'm in Burbank. He gave me an address and I got my little car. I drove up to Burbank, it's about 100 miles from me. I knocked on this apartment door. This lady opened the door, she said, you kept? I said, yeah. She goes, here you go. She handed me a bassinet and a diaper bag. I said, good luck. I looked at this little girl, she has my nose. She looked at me and she grinned. My heart exploded in my chest and I fell head over heels in love. All my guys said, hey, you gotta get a bit, you gotta get a blood test. I said, no, 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 no. God gave me this baby. I ain't giving her back. I don't care if she's mine or not. She's mine. And uh, she is mine. And uh, she just turned 13 years old. And, you know, and I'm involved in every aspect of her life and I has been since, it, since I got her. You know, uh, she's involved in all, I'm a member of the PTA and I have opinions. <laughs> a lot of them hate me, you know, I can live with that. Um, you know, it was just me and her and then for, the, for almost a year and a half. And then I, a gal that I've been on many committees, she got sober the same time I am. She's completely different. The only thing relate, the only thing she's ever had to do with a cop is she dated one once, you know? I mean, she's got three degrees. She's just an incredibly successful woman. And uh, she asked if she could hold my baby one night. And I said, do you know how to hold a baby? And I said, she goes, give me that. And I gave her my daughter. and. Uh, I saw the way she was looking at her, and I never saw that aspect of her, you know? I never saw that little facet. And I looked at her and I said, you like kids? She goes, I wanted to be a mother all my life. And I said, really? Well, what's going on with your husband? She goes, we got divorced two years ago. You didn't know that? I said, no. I said, what happened? He goes, well, I wanted to have kids, and he didn't. I said, oh. <laughs> we just celebrated 12 years of marriage last week. Anna, she's my business partner, she's my lover. She's the best friend I've ever had in my life. We have such a wonderful relationship, a wonderful life. She's fiercely independent woman. You know, she's totally involved in Alcoholics Anonymous and in the women she sponsors and she has her life and I have my life and then we have our life, you know? And that's a real healthy way to have a relationship. Neither one of us are needing the other. We just love each other's company, you know? and. Uh, 11 years ago, we went to a hospital and I got to go cut the cord on a little boy. His name was Will. And he's, I was 50 years old. And uh, I called him God's Will. And then I, I got to find out I got my clone back and it's self-will run right, you know? <laughs> As a result of the schooling my sponsor gave me and the opportunities, and a lot of luck. I have a life that I wouldn't trade places. I have a, a real nice home in Southern California. It's very humble, but I own it. I don't have any payments. My sponsor would never let me pay anything except cash as I went. He let me buy my house, but I had to make triple payments until it was paid for. I own my business. It makes me a very good living. I'm with my children. I get up in the morning. We pray together. I take them to school. We, I pick them up after school. We go do homework. We go do all kinds of different activities. I get them to bed and I do my A thing. You know, in my life, I got the life I never, in my wildest imagination, wildest imagination. You know, I didn't drink all day long. I didn't hurt nobody. I didn't hurt myself. I'm respected in my community, not just in AA. I'm involved in everything in my town. See, when I got to my amends list, the main thing that I harmed, it was my community. 
I did so much damage to my community that I owe my community and I can do a lifetime of service in my community to try to make up. And it's not just, service isn't just in AA, it's in every area. You know, my father talked about gratitude. He says, you wanna practice gratitude? Here you go, it's raining, you're at the grocery store, you got the cart. What do you do with the cart when you're done with the groceries? You leave it in the parking lot or do you push it all the way across in the rain and put it in the little thing where it goes? See, that's gratitude. The rest of it's just talk, you know? Gratitude is action. You told me you're responsible for three things, all of your actions, your reactions, and your inactions. And that's what I try to focus on. When I focus on that, I keep my nose out of everybody else's business. I wanna thank you all for having me. I'm tired, talk so long, but it was a long ride here. I stood in line longer than I talked to get on the airplane, so you can have a seat. supposed to live, you know. <clears throat> I'm going to share a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today with you. <sighs> My father's Irish, and he's Sioux, and he was raised on a Cheyenne reservation in South Dakota. And my mother's Irish and Choctaw. Oklahoma and uh, my daddy liked to drink and uh, my mother loved to and still does loves to fight and uh, you know it wasn't he'd be waiting for the old man to get home he'd be getting later and later and we had hard wooden floors and my mom would start marching you know and, and the faster she marched the better show it was going to be you know and, after a while, you'd hear that pickup truck bouncing off the curbs coming up the hill, you know. And if you looked out the window right about that time, you'd see all the neighbors grabbing a lawn chair and trying to get a good seat outside. You know, daddy'd 
fly in that driveway. My mom would fly out that front door with a butcher knife. You know, she'd go for the driver's door. He'd bail out the passenger side door, and they'd be chasing each other around the house, and all the neighbors would be cheering, you know, and, uh, and that was just Monday night, you know. The reason I tell you that, you know, I hear a lot of people go, I'm, I come from an alcoholic, you know, and I drank called my friend. My father was a prime example to me about alcohol. I, I wanted nothing to do with it, man. I saw what alcohol did to him. I saw what it did to us, you know. Uh, it made us the laughing stock of the neighborhood, you know. Uh, I, I was afraid to go out of the house. I mean, it was humiliating, and, and he embarrassed me, and, and I, I didn't want nothing to do with alcohol. I was never going to be like him, you know, uh, so I can't blame him. I blamed the uh, San Diego Unified School District. In the early 60s, they had this great idea that they're going to bring in all the, the, the young folks in there who are going to tell us about that stuff we don't talk about in A&A. You know, and uh, they showed us this movie, and they got up these two guys who got up and told us uh, about going to prison and all this stuff with it, and I'm listening, you know, and, and they, they flipped the lights back on and dismissed us, and I hit my best friend Balto in the ribs. I said, Balto, can you get some of that? And he said, yeah, my daddy smokes that stuff. I said, well, cool. And so the next day I said, you did it? He goes, yeah, meet me after school. So we hooked up. I said, so what do we do? He said, well, we got to go boost some wine. I go, how come? He says, I don't know. He said, but my daddy always drinks wine with us. You know, we don't want to make no mistakes. And uh, we went down to this little place and we, we, we stole a short dog. I, I got one of sweet red port. That was my first drink and that was my last. <laughs> But uh, he got a bottle of Muscatel, and we went down this little canyon where nobody could see us, you know, and he fired up that little cigarette, and he started taking a hit off of it. He gave me some. I started coughing. I didn't like it at all. But I looked at this stuff, and I pulled off that fancy screw cap, and I took a pull on it, you know, and that stuff hit my belly, and it jumped right out of me and landed on my shoes. But I ain't no quitter, man. I ain't no quitter. I took another pull on him, you know, and uh, it did that yo-yo thing with, you know, you gotta kind of squeeze your nose and force it back down, you know. And I gotta take another pull and it go down nice and smooth and pretty soon I finished that half pint and I was just going, whoa. And I said, Balto, you gotta drink that. He goes, no, nah, man, that stuff is horrible. And I said, mine? He said, knock yourself out. He says, you want some more of this? I said, no. And I took his and I drank his and uh, and that was my very first spiritual awakening. But I don't say that to be funny, I'm telling you straight up. That was my very first spiritual awakening. I have no idea what alcohol did for y'all. Alcohol was the most magic thing that had ever happened to me in my life at that moment. I was raised in a neighborhood, it was all first generation Hispanic. And everybody, nobody spoke English, everybody had a dark brown skin, they had dark brown hair and dark brown eyes. My cousins lived with me, and my cousins are Indian, you know, they, they got dark brown hair, dark brown skin, dark brown eyes. And me and my brother Bill, we were born real Irish toeheads, man, I had white hair, real white, blue eyes and freckles. I knew I was different, you know. When I walked out of that house, the Mexicans wanted to beat my ass. And I walked in that house, and them Indians wanted to beat my ass, you know? And I grew up, 
grew up in absolute terror. I lived in a very, very violent neighborhood. There's lots of violence in my house. Uh, there was violence all around me as long as I can remember. And fear had been such so ingrained into me, absolute terror, that it was actually part of me. And that day, I remember it crystal clear, man, because I leaned back and I looked up at the sky. And I knew something was different, and I suddenly realized I wasn't afraid of anything. You know, I felt like a whole human being for the first time in my whole life. You know, when I was 12 years old, I knew all about the first three steps of before I ever meet, met any of you folks. When I was 12 years old, I knew that my, I was powerless over this world. And I knew my life was unmanageable. And I drank this magic elixir, and I came to believe that there was a power greater than all of you. You know? And I immediately, with no reservation, turned my will and life over to it, and I never looked back. You know, it was a couple years later, I hit a teacher and knocked him out, and uh, they expelled me from San Diego Unified School District. It was, it was a misunderstanding, actually. And uh, I got home, and you know, they called my mom, and i tell you a little bit about my mom. I love her to death. I, I take care of my mother has Alzheimer's, and I take care of her today, but man, her time, she was about the meanest woman I've ever known in my life. You gotta respect her. I mean, one time I saw her stab my daddy three different times, and one time the next door neighbor was yelling at me about something, and she snuck up behind him and knocked him cold with a shovel, you know? When I say you gotta respect a woman like that, that's exactly what I mean. You gotta respect a woman like that, you know? My, my, my mama plays no games, and I, I'm walking up the road, and she's looking at me, so she says, so you got kicked out of school, huh? I said, yeah. And she holds up this little bag of green vegetable matter. She goes, what's this stuff? I said, probably just what you think it is. And she said, yeah. She said, get out of my house. You're done here. No, 